the reason you can't imagine that there now is because investors aren't coming there now because there aren't comps. If you can come to areas and you're an investor there and you've been making money there and you want to make more money, the way you're going to do that is to make that area more investable for bigger money. That's going to directly affect your cost per square foot, which is going to make your overall value of your real estate more. Do more there create more comps, that will create a higher likelihood of larger investment. Larger investment is going to increase your property value. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Mark Berkowitz. Mark is a founder of an investment and advisory firm called Coplace. And today, we'll be diving deep into Opportunity Zone investments. Opportunity Zone funds allow investors to defer their capital gains taxes for up to seven years. It reduces the tax basis on those gains and allows the capital gains of the fund investment to be tax-free if they hold on to the property for over 10 years. There's a lot that we cover in this episode, so be sure to take good notes. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. Enjoy. All right, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what do you do? Hey, Sean, thanks for having me on the show today. I'm one of the founders of a company called Coplace. We're an investment and advisory firm, and we've been focusing a lot on distressed communities for many years now. And with the advent of this new Opportunity Zone program, recently passed by Congress, we've been doing a lot of work in opportunity zones around the country. And what's your backstory? How did you guys even start Coplace? We started Coplace because myself and my partners, we are all, I guess, reasonably successful young entrepreneurs and investors. And we started working on some projects uh, locally in Southern California, San Diego area, started really with a public-private partnership with the city on a project to activate some space in a distressed area of town and it felt good to do I and mean, it made sense to do financially and so we proceeded in starting to do some more of those kinds of projects and we'd had background in again working in distressed areas and and things like that so we were ready to take on the task and you know it's gone successfully and we've continued to do it locally and throughout California and with other investors and developers across the country as well. So go ahead and tell us about Opportunity Zones. Like, I think for a lot of people, they have no idea what it is. So go ahead and just give us a blanket statement and all the nitty gritty about it. All right. So blanket statement, opportunity, the Opportunity Zone legislation or the Investing in Opportunity Act that was passed with the Trump tax bill in 2017, although I will preface and say it was also wide, the most widely bipartisan piece of legislation that's been passed in, in decades. So while it came in this legislation's tax bill, it was worked on and created by Obama-era economists and has been being worked through Congress for many, many years and had the, the most support, like I said, of bipartisan support, that is, of any legislation in recent history. And why that is, this is widely considered to be the largest public incentive for private investment, predominantly into the most distressed areas of the United States that's ever existed. The overall number is that they say about 6.7 or $6.3 trillion. It's hard to nail that number down exactly unrealized capital gains that are sitting unused in the markets throughout the country. 
And the federal government is incentivizing those types of investors to invest those monies patiently into distressed communities around the country. And so what happened is, and I'll kind of give you know the history of this since I'm talking to a Bay Area real estate group, it actually is a Bay Area-born piece of legislation. Sean Parker, the original Facebook president and founder of Napster, maybe people remember that background on him. When he exited Facebook, he invested in three things. He invested in the Stanford, the Sean Parker Institute for Cancer at Stanford University. He invested in his own philanthropic fund, the the Parker Foundation. And he invested in starting and forming a bipartisan think tank called Economic Innovation Group, hired two Obama-era economists, Steve Glickman and John Lettieri. And those two gentlemen worked with uh, Cory Booker and Tim Scott as the primary champions of the bill. And they got it passed as part of the Trump tax bill. And so what does it mean? What does it do? Well, there's capital gains that are a form of income that comes from either investment in real estate or investment in stocks or investment in other types of of hard or liquid assets. And it's not income. It's it's a gain that you received from an investment that you made or a business sale or some sort of sense like that. So it's how the IRS categorizes this money is capital gains. Like I said, there's about $6.3 trillion of it sitting on the sidelines, not being invested because there are, are massive tax bills do if you were to like cash in that stock. Let's use stock as an example. Let's say you cash in some Amazon stock to the tune of a million dollars. As a California resident, your tax bill, including state and federal tax, is about $330,000, $333 plus or minus, right? Um, so that's a big chunk of money. And there's a whole lot of folks um, that don't want to pay that that bill. And so that money never gets actually cashed out of those stocks and invested into other areas. It just kind of sits there. And maybe people will get a loan against that portfolio and, and pay interest, but they're not going to pay 35 plus or minus percent in taxes. And so for that reason, this money has been set aside for quite some time and not being activated into the general marketplace, right? And so additionally to that, when that money tends to be activated, that tends to be your, your A-class money, folks who've made money from investments and from business sales and things like that tend to be a bit more sophisticated than the general member of society. And therefore, you know, they're going to take quite a lot of consideration about if and how they pay that tax, right? And so what this incentive does is it incentivizes folks who have that kind of capital to invest it into these distressed areas, because typically that class A money is going to go and invest into class A areas such that you know, they might invest in the Beverly Hills as opposed to the Compton, to use Southern California examples, or the, you know, Knob Hill in San Francisco compared to the East Oakland. But this program is incentivizing the investment into the distressed areas in order to, to build them up. And so if an investor were to invest their money into qualified opportunity zone, of which there are 8,700 or so individually identified census tracts that have been selected by local and state governments and then approved by the federal government, whereby if an investor invests into one of these areas and keeps their capital there, either in a real estate or business investment or otherwise, that is located within the census tract, they get some pretty significant benefits. So first benefit is if the money's there and invested for five years, they're going to get a, a discount or what's called a step up in basis on that tax bill. So to go back to that Amazon example, you have a million dollars in taxable gain. 
you're going to owe plus or minus 33 and a third percent, you're going to get a 5% step up in basis from there if you're there for five years. If you're there for seven years, you get a 10% step up in basis. And if you're there for seven years by 2000 or 2027, then you get a 15% step up in basis. And so what does that mean in numbers? That means in numbers is if you're paying 333,000 plus or minus in a standard tax bill, if you get the full 15% step up in basis, you're paying more like a 260-ish thousand dollar tax bill. And the reason for that is that instead of paying it on a million dollars, you're paying a tax bill on $850,000. Now, in addition to that, you get to defer those taxes. So in a standard liquidation event, they would call it, when you when you cash in that stock, for instance, you're going to owe the government that $333,000 the day that you cash in that stock. If you invest into a qualified opportunity fund or qualified opportunity zone property or business, you will be able to defer that out for the duration of your investment. So that's five, seven, 10 years, how long you stay in that investment. The tax bill on the original gain is due into 2027 though. Okay, so in 2027, the investor is going to have the original tax bill due on the gain that they realize. So, but you're pushing it out for seven years in the interim. Now, the big kicker on this program and what really is attracting a lot of capital into this, this market right now is that all of the gains that you make over the duration of your investment, so let's say that's five, seven, ten years, all that money is tax-free. And so real estate's getting a lot of attention because real estate is, is easy, quote unquote, to structure as it relates to the compliance for the program. Now, that being said, the program was designed for business investment. And so the example I like to use on that is, is you could own the house and or start the business of Google. You start the next Google and in 10 years from now, cash out in an IPO or something like that. And those billions and billions of dollars are all tax free. So now the program does not affect earned income. So your income on these properties is not going to be tax free. It's going to have standard income tax, but all the gains, all your profit would be 100% tax free. So that's a pretty massive incentive. So you can think about that from a real estate development perspective or a real estate portfolio perspective. You buy a whole bunch of houses today, keep them as rental for 10 years. What do they look like as value in 10 years compared to today? Whatever that difference is, let's say your portfolio cost today plus rehab is 500 grand and in 10 years it's worth 5 million. All of that money between the 500 grand and the 5 million is tax-free. The idea here with the program is, is incentivization for early adopters. So if you invested in the program, which, you know, let's let's backtrack this a just a, a bit to, to understand how new this program is, right? So this program was passed with the Trump tax bill, right? Which means it didn't get written into law as something that could even start to be, you know, some guidelines and compliance rules set around it until January 1, 2018, right? And so we're here, what, in September 2019? This is less than two years old. We do not have a final piece of quote unquote legislation that makes this law. I mean, it is law. It's part of law that you can invest in this program, but all of the guidelines are not strictly written into law as they would be uh, in this for the same way for any other type of fund structure. So all we have currently right now is two rounds of what's called guidance from the IRS and treasury. And then recently there was an additional, they call it something else, but a, a guidance letter that was written by some folks from the SEC and things like that, just around uh, 
identifying that these types of funds are considered a security. So it's very, very new. The idea currently, I was just speaking last week in Chicago and had a conversation with someone from Treasury, and they they don't believe there's going to be another round of regs or guidance that they plan on integrating the two sets of guidance that's already happened into a, a final set of rules. And those rules are reasonably stringent, and I'll just go into them really quickly. And so there's more nuance to some of this. I could go on for a, a fair amount of time on the compliance. So first and foremost, there's what's called the asset test. And so the asset test is such that a qualified opportunity fund, and so I'll define what a qualified opportunity fund is, because what's important about it is it's very easy to form. So let's say some of your listeners have stock um, or have assets in, in, in other forms, right? And what's really important about this is for a standard real estate investor, you know, there's options for tax deferral and various different things that you can do, like a 1031 and some other more you know, sophisticated tools you can use to not have to actually pay capital gains tax in real estate. There is no other option for any other sort of asset. So if you want to cash in stock and you want to defer those assets, that, those gains, there's not a mechanism outside of this qualified opportunities program that currently exists to do that. And so this is going to unlock a lot of that capital into new places, either real estate and or, or business. And so what the asset, so, so first and foremost, creating a fund is as simple as forming an LLC and doing what's called a self-designation. It means you form an LLC, when you pay your taxes the first year, you let the IRS know that you're designating yourself as a qualified opportunity fund. Now, that might change sometime in the future as to how you have to register the fund, but currently it's as simple as starting an LLC and checking off a box to designate yourself. From there, it's signing up for the compliance, okay? And the compliance is an asset test and an income test and a substantial improvement test. And so the asset test says all the assets of the fund that could be one or many, must be invested in qualified census tracts, again, one or many, to the tune of 90% of the total asset value of the fund. So if you have a million dollars in assets in the fund, 900 million of those, or $900,000 rather of those assets need to be in property and or businesses that are located in those qualified census tracts. Additionally, there's the, the income. And so if you're investing into businesses or what they call QOZBs, 70% of the income derived from the business needs to take place from within the census tract. Now, the question is, does that mean you know only local businesses are going to qualify? The answer to that is no. So I used the example of Google before. That would be you know a Google headquarters or a Google management office where a primary business address, right? So where executives are or for where management is taking place would qualify. The income does not for the income test. That, that does not mean that all of the income needs to be derived from customers within those areas, okay? And then beyond that, there's what's called the substantial improvement test. And the substantial improvement test says that if you buy property and there is any sort of building on it, then you have to improve the existing structure by at least the amount of the structure. So let's say you buy a property for a million dollars. It has a warehouse on the corner. Warehouse is worth 500,000. Land value is 500,000. You have to improve the property by $500,000 within 30 months. Now, additionally, there's some, some additional nuance that goes into each of those qualifications about you know ongoing maintenance of those things. And there's some working capital requirements about how much money you can have in cash. 
and for how long you can. But the main ideas around a lot of this compliance are, are to avoid bad actors. So the last thing that the government wants to see happen is folks like us, you know, getting a big gain, investing into some sort of property or business into a QOZ, and then immediately getting a friendly refinance from a friend to pull out, you know, 100% of what we invested. And then now we've got tax-free money, except for whatever interest rate our friend wants to charge us. So that, that's what they don't want to see. And so there's a lot of restrictions and compliance around how money's going to move and when and how you can make disbursements to investors and, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. Okay, very cool. <laughs> Definitely a lot of information to digest at one point. Okay, so I remember you said there was a hard cutoff date where like, I think your taxes are due in 2027 or 2026. Yeah. So in 2027, the capital gains that were realized from the original event. So let's go back to that, that Amazon stock, right? So when you cashed in that Amazon stock, let's say you did that on you know, January 1, 2019, from that day forward is when the gain occurred, right? And so in 2027, you will pay you will defer from now until 2027 the original gain of the million on the Amazon stock. And then if you are invested in your structure or in a, a group of structures, right, for seven years by 2027, which means you would have had to have invested your money inside the year of 2019. So that's something to think about. So if anybody who's listening wants to ensure that they get the maximum benefit of the deferral and step up in basis, then in get your money invested into a qualified opportunity fund prior to the end of 2019. Now, something to keep in mind is there there is a an investment timeline as well, which would say that if you take a realize a gain, you have 180 days to make an investment into a qualified opportunity fund. Now, again, if you remember a moment ago, I mentioned that creating a qualified opportunity fund is as simple as creating an LLC or a partnership uh, designating it as a qualified opportunity fund. And then you can use that as a vehicle to invest. So if you think about somebody who's either already had a gain and wasn't properly planning for this and just hasn't cashed it in yet, or somebody who's expecting to take a gain and wants to do that in 2019, but doesn't necessarily have an investment already pre-identified to go into, those people could create their own fund, take their gain from their personal name, bring it into this corporate entity which they can identify as a quote unquote qualified fund. And then that vehicle then makes the investment into another fund. Does that, if that makes sense. And so that buys an extra 180 days for that investor to deploy that capital into a fund. Okay. And so a lot of what we're going to see happen in 2027 is a lot of funds are going to do a refinance. So there's a non-taxable event for a disbursement to investors. And that's primarily what the industry expects to have happen as it relates to facilitating investors paying that tax bill that's due in 2027. Now, you do not need to sunset any of your investments. The program will go out to 2047 at this point and will likely get extended further beyond that because it's not necessarily fair for the government to say to us as investors, you invested in this thing and you can be into it, into it for 10 years, but you have to be out of it in 10 years. What if that's not the right time to sell? And so you don't have to be out, but you do have to pay the tax bill. And the vast majority of investors are probably going to have, depending on the types of funds they invest in, whether they're investing in third-party managed funds or they're investing 
into their own, you know, I guess self-directed fund, there is going to be that tax bill due. And a lot of ways that's going to be realized is through a refinance, which tidbit for anybody listening who's in the financing business might look at becoming a refinance arm for qualified opportunity funds right around 2026. (laughs) Yep, that's really smart. It's going to be a lot of business during that time. It sure is. So I think another issue that people are thinking about is that 10 years is a long time to hold on to a property. It, you know, it affects your IRR if you hold on to it longer. Are you allowed to sell properties but have them within the same fund? Like sell a property here, buy another property, or does it be 10 years with the same property? Absolutely. You can cycle investments as I would describe it. There are some things that with proper structuring can be mitigated. However, there are some things to keep in mind when doing that. So each time you have a gain, so let's say you've invested in a fund, that fund, uh, so I'm going to give two examples. One, you've invested in a fund, and for whatever reason, either you're happy or you're dissatisfied, let's say they complete a project, that fund, and you want to exit. You can exit that fund. You have 180 days to reinvest into another fund to stay compliant with the program. You do not need to stay in the same fund. You do not need to keep your allocations to a single fund. You can change the allocations across funds. You can change the amount of funds you're invested in. You can change which funds you're invested in. You can change which areas you're invested in, as long as you're within compliance around the asset tests, the income tests, the substantial improvement tests, et cetera. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that when you have the gain, you could potentially, if not structured properly, it's essentially you're you're moving your timeline forward again. You're starting over your 10-year clock right, of how long you need to be in the program to continue to push forward those deferrals. And so for some investors, that's a benefit. So think 1031, right? That's the whole idea of of the 1031, deferring for, for forever, right? You can continue to defer a 1031 over and over and over again, multi-generationally, and that's how massive wealth gets built without having to pay tax with real estate. You can do the same thing with this program. It's just a lot of the investors who are coming into this program are looking at it as a way to get the best bang for their buck within a reasonably short period of time with like, you know, 10 years not being short, but there's a, there's an end to this 10 years. And so a lot of the investors looking at it are going to want to take advantage of being able to get out, capture that profit, and then, you know, maybe go a different direction or maybe stay in these areas. But that's essentially how it works. So wait, what would cause it to push the 10 year timeline out? So let's say you have a property, let's say you buy a house and you add a unit to the back or you rehab it or you you build seven units on the lot or something like that. And then you sell that off and realize again, you have a profit. When you have that gain, you essentially are starting from that new gain. Does that make sense? Got it. So yeah, so it doesn't make sense really to sell unless you want to have that timeline pushed out. That's not necessarily true. I just want to be... You know, mindful to say if you're structured properly, right? So as I understand it, and again, this is something for folks to chat with, with their you know, personal advisors about this, because this is a very you know, individual taxpayer-based program. That model that I alluded to earlier that would buy the investor time, you know, say the investor takes their gain as an individual and then starts their own qualified fund that qualified fund then making the investment to other funds might be able to mitigate those kinds of challenges, right? Because ultimately, this is something to be clear on. Ultimately, again, this is an individual taxpayer program. So if the fund self-directed or third-party directed does not follow the compliance guidelines, there is 
every possibility that at the end of 10 years, it could be not a qualified investment. And then you would have the full tax bill due and you know, would have a bill on the, the profit, et cetera. So you know, outside of being in compliance, there's not much to hold you into the program to you know, assure that you're, I guess, following the, the legislative tax rules, if that makes sense. So as long as you're in compliance, you're good. And within the context of compliance, you know, to use the proper structures from an entity and jurisdiction standpoint is probably a smart idea that folks should, should really think about prior to making these investments. And again, there's you know, either individual advisors or there's, there's a fair amount of good, solid tax and legal advisors that are focusing a lot on opportunity zones at this point too. So I just strongly encourage folks to think this through before they just make a brash decision about how they invest into this program, because there are a lot of ways to mitigate things if done properly. So the, the way I would, the example I would like to give is, you know, you see this stuff in the news about, you know, Apple or Amazon being these massive companies that have all these profits and they pay no taxes. Well, this is not the same thing. That is just to say there are plenty of legal options that are available to structure these things properly, right? And I, again, I don't want to use that as an example, as a specific thing to to say this is the same. It is not the same. That That's income, that's jurisdictional and entity-based structuring to you know filter profits through a variety of, of areas. But the goal is that they, they accomplish the same goal, right? They make a ton of profit. They don't have to pay taxes on, on that. Where in this structure, you know, think hedge funds, think Wall Street, all of those types of intricate structured finance rules apply to this program. So the more sophisticated you can look at the program, the more options you're going to have. It, it just depends on what kind of eye you look at it with. Okay. And uh, what kind of projects do you think you need to have to make it worth your trouble? You know, you probably won't do a flip in an opportunity zone and hold it for 10 years, right? Well, okay, that depends on your model, I guess. So, like, if you're a you know a single like like a single family rental person who wants to buy a distressed asset on the front end and do a flip on it and then put a, a rental tenant in there and and hold that for some period of time, you could do that. Additionally, you could keep these assets and offload them to other investors and do it through a different, a non-standard maybe sale, right? You could you could realize the gain by selling this property with a land lease, for instance. But all things considered, this is for, you know, development plays, adaptive reuse, larger scale rehab, business investment. And additionally, you know, something that we do that I, I really like to get across to folks is not to just look at QOZs or qualified opportunity zones as a way to participate in a federal program because there are plenty of options, tons of options to participate in this program by not actually even one, having capital gains dollars or two, having an interest in, you know, having properties for 10 years. So to give you an example, we have within our own business, we have opportunity zone projects that we do. Those are like single asset deals that we'll, we'll raise money on and syndicate and, and complete and hold. And then we have like an opportunistic what you call general fund or a, a multi-strategy fund. And what that does is that focuses on opportunistic real estate strategies within opportunity zones as a geography, right? Because there's a few things to, to be very clear on about these areas is one, there's not a lot of them. All the investors in the country who want to take part in this program will be focused on these 8,700 census tracts. 
there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of census tracts across the country. These 8,700 are going to get the attention. So that means there is more demand in these areas. So much so that currently properties located in opportunity zones across the country are commanding between a five and 25% premium for no other reason than they're located in these zones. And so I like to tell folks, think about what you're doing in your standard real estate business and maybe focus some of your time and effort into opportunity zones as a geography because these areas are going to be getting and be ripe for and have more eyes on for investment. And so if you're a wholesaler, then you're probably going to get a better margin on that wholesale deal. If you're a flipper, the likelihood that you could go in there and maybe either take a little bit of time or piggyback on a larger development nearby or know that this area is going to be improving over the next several years, you'll probably get a better return. Now, something that we like to, not that we like to, but that's part of our methodology and how we choose the investments we make is that we take a, a very deep dive into data-driven analysis to identify you know, a variety of different things, right? And so if you maybe think about this uh, from a development perspective or even a standard you know, flipper perspective, there are plenty of what we call like zoning overlay discrepancies. And so that might be that single family home that's a legal non-conforming use currently because there's been a rezone in the area uh, and that lot is actually currently zoned for up to seven units to be built on it. So, you know, take a traditional flipper mindset, go in there, instead of spending money rehabbing the property, spend a couple bucks hiring, you know, architect and engineer, get that project entitled for those seven units. There are going to be plenty of QOZ funds out there waiting to gobble up that project. Because another thing that, that I'll mention now, which I didn't mention before, is that all funds based off of the substantial improvement requirements, I don't want to say all funds because our fund actually buys earlier in the development cycle than most, but the vast majority of funds are buying only what are called shovel-ready projects. And so there are plenty of deals out there that aren't getting looked at because funds don't want to take the risk of having to try to entitle that property. In places like California, it's impossible. 30 months, there's no way you're going to get a project fully entitled and substantial improvement done. It's just not feasible in major metros in large cities. And so that has made it such that all these funds are buying shovel-ready projects. So there's a massive opportunity for folks to come in and entitle and assemble, you know, assemble single-family homes and entitle them into multifamily uses and upleg up those to qualified opportunity funds. Additionally, any folks who are interested or take part in the first trustee business, you know, private money lending, perfect place to do private money lending. There's going to be other folks in these areas who are going to be, again, focused on them. You might be able to get better returns for your first trustee investments in these areas. There are premiums. And so whatever your business is today, I encourage you to focus on opportunity zones as a geography, or at least look into them and identify areas that are close to your existing markets where you, you're doing your business and see if you can participate in these opportunity zones, because the likelihood of you to be able to get you know, larger than standard returns is high. Now, let's be clear, you're not getting tax deferral or you know, essentially, quote unquote, free profit. But what you are getting is better margins than you would be getting on your standard deals that you're doing in your regular business. And so that's definitely a strategy that we're employing. So we are doing opportunity zone projects. 
uh, but you're also focused on opportunity zones as a geography. I mean, generally speaking, if you take the average money management company, only like three to 8% of the total assets under management are capital gains dollars, right? So the amount of folks who are even able to participate in this program is relatively limited if you think about how that relates to the general investing public, right? So three to 8% of people can even participate. And of that three to 8%, only a handful of that percentage is going to participate, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of folks looking in a small number of areas, relatively speaking, deploying a lot of capital. So that's really smart. Like, I guess what investors, like local investors can do who aren't raising huge amounts of money for these giant funds, what they can do is they could probably go and look at properties in the specific census tracts that have opportunity zones. Like for example, we have stuff here in San Jose and we could probably just look at properties that are zoned, not zoned incorrectly, but I guess you have like a SFR on a multifamily structured or you have an SFR on a lot that's zoned for multifamily and you can probably just target those properties, get them entitled and then sell them to a development fund. Absolutely. And also... In San Jose, you've got a couple of, of actually really well-known folks, not really well-known, but they're doing some really good work in San Jose in those opportunity zones. So I encourage folks to to take a look at, um, there's no benefit to me by saying this actually, but Urban Catalyst is doing some really interesting work in San Jose. And there's a lot of focus on San Jose. There are some really interesting, very high-end opportunity zones in California. Some folks, even Steve Glickman, the architect of the legislation, I've had the good fortune of uh, working with him on several things. You know, some of these different opportunity zones are kind of a black eye on the program, right? So the, the census track where Stanford University is, is an opportunity zone. And I'm sure everybody listening, if they're from the Bay Area, knows full well that that is a, anything but a distressed community. But based on the fact that it's mostly students, many of whom don't work or have relatively low paying jobs, it is. And so there are a lot of those that exist within California and other parts of the country. Many funds will focus on those. It's not necessarily the spirit of the program. Our our investments tends to focus on the truly distressed neighborhoods. But that's one strategy. Go to the census tracks. Uh, everybody can check out Steve Glickman's website. He has a consulting firm, Develop LLC. And Steve has essentially identified each of the 8,700 plus census tracts in the country and then given them an investability score, right? And then so one side of the score is it's the most gentrified and needs the least amount of investment and therefore probably has the least amount of growth expectation over the next 10 years. The other is the areas who have the least amount of investment and therefore, or least amount of quote unquote investability, verifiable investment metrics, which would get the general investing public to be funneling money into those areas, you know, those areas are going to have potentially more growth. And our strategy internally is that we identify those areas that are, you know, there's an anomaly down here in, in Southern California. I wouldn't say an anomaly, but these exist in, in most cities, you know, just outside of those fully gentrified areas down here in San Diego, we have uh, a really good version of this, I guess, to, to say where we're doing a project. You know, there's the, the gas lamp downtown district, which is one mile, and that is the least investable area, meaning it's the most gentrified. And less than a mile away is the area with the highest amount of growth, right? We're talking 20 blocks or less away. And so we will tend to go to those areas just outside of a gentrified area and look to bookend 
those areas. Um, so gentrify, gentrification, let's say, is moving west. We'll go just outside of it and move it to the east and move it back towards the west. So we have an, uh, a convergence of, of growth. And I've said this word a couple of times, and it's a nasty word politically right now, and that's gentrification. And I encourage folks to not necessarily look at that word as entirely bad because the you know, traditional non-political definition of gentrification is to take a distressed area and, and bring it to you know, a more middle-class standing. There's nothing wrong with that at all, except for typically how that tends to happen is that larger scale developers come in and they change an area rapidly and without much focus on the effect on the community at large, and they displace the existing members of that community. And so that's where it gets very politicized and it, and it looks really bad in the national media. But if you take an approach to coming to these areas and focus holistically, that's, that's just kind of our tagline of to take a holistic approach and an inside out approach to community activation and overall impact on a neighborhood, then if you have a longer mindset, you can make what I would argue are better decisions for your own capital and for the neighborhood at large, right? And so a lot of times what we see happen with developers is they'll come in and they'll buy an entitled property and they will, you know, there's a public hearing involved before you can start building and they'll, you know, there's there has to be a notice for that public hearing and they'll put it in the, the newspaper and the least circulated newspaper in the middle of the classified section in the smallest font possible and hope that nobody shows up to the community hearing. Because, you know, a lot of times what will happen is the community is not happy about what's being built. They might have just bought some, you know, gotten a good deal on some place they could build 100 apartment units or something like that. And they're going to come and build their 100 apartment units. They're going to build them the way that they can by right and by the way that they make sense financially in their spreadsheets, because the goal of most developers is to get two things, right? The management fee for the money and the developer fee for the project and the profit for, for managing all of that. They're lesser concerned about the overall impact. And that's why a lot of time you'll see these mixed use developments in emerging American markets, which is another way to describe these distressed communities, right? They're just emerging markets. You'll see vacant ground floor retail with, you know, leased up quote unquote affordable units above. And those affordable units are filled with tenants who just can't afford to live in the hip neighborhood a couple miles away, but they are not affordable to the local community. And the local community isn't gaining any sort of upward mobility by having this project built there. So I encourage folks as they go into these neighborhoods to take a, a holistic approach to how they look at things and you can kind of have better outcomes. So do you purchase properties or so when you develop properties in these, I guess, emerging markets, do you put up like a super nice contemporary or modern contemporary style building? Or do you start with something that's more something that would blend better with what's already there? Like, for example, we saw an opportunity in Fruitvale in Oakland and, you know, around there, it's, it's pretty hood. I don't, I, I don't imagine seeing a brand new development in that specific location now, but maybe in five, 10 years. Well, yeah, and that's that's that kind of goes to a good point. One is the reason you can't imagine that there now is because investors aren't coming there now because there aren't comps, right? And so if your listeners can think about that, if you can come to areas, if you have a mindset around, let's say, Oakland, and you're an investor there and you've been making money there and you want to make more money, the way you're going to do that is to make that area more investable for bigger money, right? And so 
that's going to directly affect your cost per square foot, which is going to make your overall value of your real estate more. And so generally that's an issue with these areas is just that the comps aren't there. So if folks are focused on those areas, generally speaking, doing their standard business, do more there, create more comps, that will create a higher likelihood of larger investment. Larger investment is going to increase your property value. Okay. Now, as it goes into building, you know, I think that that's dependent upon the particular area and the particular project. Adaptive reuse is uh, a lot cheaper. We tend to focus on finding projects ourselves that have some type of building on the site as opposed to starting with vacant, because if you're starting vacant, you pretty much have to build something. And if you're starting with a property that has some sort of building on it, you know, the, the ideal kind of place in my mind to target, especially if somebody's looking out there to assemble properties and upleg those to other investors after they've entitled them or something like that, because there's definitely a play to come in on these properties and just land bank for the duration, right? You come in, you buy, as an example, I'll use from a project we're doing, you're buying an acre of land, urban acre of land, right? So basically almost a whole a half a city block. And on that, on the far corner is a 7,000 square foot warehouse. That warehouse has a value of about $350,000 building value, right? On a three and a half million dollar plus or minus purchase. So all we have to do to that project to check off our compliance box for substantial improvement is spend an extra 350 grand. So we can do that in that existing warehouse. We can turn that into some sort of potentially even, you know, a lot of what we do focuses on the community activation and placemaking to create changes in traffic and changes in retail spending, which again, will have a larger impact on attracting larger scale tenants and larger scale developers. And we'll do temporary uses. So I encourage people to think about these projects and these properties as not only a single use, but as a multiple use over time. So on our projects, we'll typically come in, we'll buy the property as is, we'll reposition it, put some sort of placemaking and site activation use on the site. And we'll do that temporarily from year, like say two to five. And then in year five, we are in a position with the community. We're super ingratiated to the city and to our local community around us because we've, you know, made some some cool project that the community loves and gets to be a part of. And then when we go, we can ask for zoning changes or density increases or parking requirement decreases or any of these things. We go with community support. Uh, so our requests typically tend to get granted, right? And then additionally to that, you're able to typically get a better bang for your buck, right? So you come into these areas, you, you activate with a temporary use, maybe you know, to use an example, since we're talking about San Diego, that census tract that's the least investable, that's you know 22 blocks or so away from us, is average cost per square foot between 350 and $500. We're buying at 83 bucks a foot, you know, plus or minus a mile away. So over the next several years, it is reasonable to expect for us to see 200 plus dollar per square foot values on that real estate. And so that's just a double, that just doubled our land value. Now let's say that today, and this is a true example, that property is zoned for ground floor retail plus 80 units of apartments on top. Well, in some time after we've activated that space, we can go and request a density bonus, right? And it's likely, and we've started these conversations early, right? It's likely that that the city and the community would approve us to do ground floor retail plus 300 units. 
And so it's just about how you are looking at these projects. And for us, in this particular project, what we're doing is taking this large, quasi-large, right, half a city block, and we're breaking it into essentially three different projects. One will be this warehouse, which will generate a nice cash flow and investors could get in and out of in under 10 years. Another would is a 22-unit apartment complex. We're building the apartments out of shipping containers, which makes it movable. We can have another conversation about that on another day because we love all things modular, especially for commercial uses and especially for temporary. And then in the, in the center, we'll do this placemaking community activation project. We're going to use, again, retrofitted used shipping containers to do to house about 50 local businesses that we will incubate and bring out to the main street through a process that that we internally use to grow entrepreneurship but even without that we have 50 plus businesses there in shipping containers along with a variety of other entertainment and community uses to bring traffic to that area and so do i say that you should come in and build you know a nice modern building that could be fine we're building some really nice modern super unlike anything else in the area, shipping container units that are going to stand out like a sore thumb. We will also eventually probably build something that's more architecturally in line with the neighborhood when we get to that point at the end. And if you can imagine that same site on the same city block, on one end, you have you know 22 super unique, super modern looking shipping container apartments. And on the other side of that same block, you have a historic brick warehouse that's been essentially just rehabbed and filled with retail tenants. So you essentially have a, you know, a mini mall on one end, and then you have these nice, this will be like a workforce housing type of place, but nice, high-end, very modern looking uh, units just, you know, a minute's walk away. So I think architecture is less of a concern than the buy-in from the community about the project itself. And we have a ton of support for what I just described. You know, the neighborhood and the community surrounding whatever projects you're doing is who your primary focus should be. Can I be in line with and can I do things that are in line with the overall trajectory of this neighborhood? And we collectively and they collectively want to see it go. There's a million ways to make profit. The ways these kinds of communities that tends to work the best is to focus on the folks who have been there. And if you do, especially in these types of areas, I would say you will be pleasantly surprised with one, your returns, and two, the responses you get from the folks in the neighborhood. You know, a lot of these distressed areas are that way simply because they've been forgotten or ignored. And so folks who've been forgotten or ignored for decades are interested and happy to work with folks who take a holistic approach to moving their neighborhoods forward. Now, they aren't going to stand very much behind folks who are going to come in there and fundamentally change their neighborhoods and remove all the culture and remove all the history and kick them out of the neighborhood because they can't afford to be there anymore. That you're going to have some major issues with. And some of our advisory clients have had some of those big issues. There's some folks we worked with and are working with rather uh, in Denver who you know, called us after they had their, I think it's 700 plus units mixed use development that they're doing there. The development process got shut down for eight months by a 23 person non-formal community group who showed up at the public hearings and banged on their drums and got the community to listen. And the planning commission shut everything down. And what they ended up making the developer do is to create what's called a community benefit agreement with the local community. Now the project has started to move forward since, but the community's still not happy. Do you want to know what the challenge was? The challenge was not what 
was going to be at the project. The community loves the ideas and the uses that will be at the project. Nobody asked their opinion. That's it. Nobody asked their opinion. The whole project got shut down. Now, I'm not sure if anybody has started to work those numbers out in their heads, but I can assure you that a 700 plus unit development in one of the hottest areas of Denver is worth many, many millions of dollars. And I'm sure that those eight months of, of stagnation were not free. And so that's something to really keep in your mind when you come to these areas. Be mindful of the communities you're in. Take a focus on those communities. Take a focus on, more importantly, the people within those communities. And if you do, and if you just have your mind around that, as you go in and do whatever your investment strategy is there, again, I, I believe you'll be pleasantly surprised with the, the response and pleasantly surprised with the return. Uh, and that's something that I encourage folks also to think about is if you're not investing in distressed community or distressed assets, take a look at it. Sometimes things look st scary and sound scary, but I can say from experience as an investor who's primarily focused on distressed areas as a matter of practice for nearly 20 years now, the returns can be significantly better than class A areas because we've invested in those areas. I've managed funds that primarily hold assets in class A areas and managed properly with the right focus, especially if you take a mind for people, the returns in distressed communities with distressed assets are significantly better. Yeah, definitely something to look at in the future. So Mark, how can people get in contact with you? Easiest way to contact me, mark at coplace.com, M-A-R-C at C-O-P-L-A-C-E.com. That is our company that is doing the Opportunity Zone related stuff. I alluded to some stuff about data-driven analysis. If you want to learn more about that stuff, shoot me an email at that same email. We have a separate business called Ideal Target that does all of the real estate site selection and predictive analytics stuff. And I'd be happy to connect anybody with, with that because we get pretty deep into some really interesting analysis. All right, Mark. Thanks again for all your time and I'll see you around in a bit. Sounds good. Take care. Bye. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Opportunity zones give investors the opportunity to invest in underserved neighborhoods while also giving them some amazing tax benefits. Because of the strict deadline, most fund managers only want to purchase properties that are shovel-ready, which means that they've been through the planning and building departments and have their permits approved. If you're in the lending space, it could be a good idea to get into the refinancing arm for QIZ funds in 2026, because a lot of them will need to do a cash-out refinance so that their investors can pay their capital gains taxes. Mark also thinks that it'll be a good idea to look into buying properties in a qualified opportunity zone because big investors will start putting money into these areas, which will increase the value of your properties as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.